Welcome again. So glad that you are here with us um, here in this room, up in the fellowship hall, joining us online. What joy, what a privilege it is that we have to gather together, to sing, to pray, and then to come to the Word together. So if you have a Bible and you are following along with us in our series through Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to consider the whole of the chapter, though we're going to read verses 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 23. As we pick back up after our series around Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, last Sunday, uh, we are returning back to Exodus. And we are returning back on the heels of the people of God making for themselves a golden calf, an idol. While Moses was up on the mountain getting instructions and commandments from the Lord to give to the people on what does this look like to dwell as those who have been delivered and rescued by God. They were fashioning an idol. So that was last chapter, Exodus 32. This week we resume with Exodus 33. What is God's ultimate response going to be? Let's read verses 12 through 23 of Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now as we come to this remarkable passage, in light of an incredible moment that just occurred with the people of God, Mount Sinai, I pray that our hearts would just soar in worship at the display of your grace and your mercy. 
Grace and mercy for sinners. Grace and mercy for sinners such as us. So as we come to this, God, would you do a good work in us and to help us see that you are truly our only means of sheltering grace. You are our cleft in the rock and may our hearts run to you and cling to you in faith. Be with us now, we pray. In the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing, the trusting this, your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. The heart longs for security and sweetness that only God can provide. The heart is wired and made. God fashioned our hearts to long for security and sweetness, and only God in His presence provides that. We will, or do, currently are, depending on the way our hearts are functioning, we feel an angst, living out our lives, holding on to lesser things, things like relationships, health, acceptance, comfort, family even. We feel an angst. We're asking these lesser things to be much bigger for our hearts than they can be. We also feel an emptiness when those things can't bring what only God can bring in His security and sweetness within His presence. We feel a longing and an angst, and when we chase after stuff or things or people or notoriety or acceptance or whatever, and we try to bring them into our lives to fill that angst, only thing that comes is a sense of emptiness because it can't quite do it. And then we lack contentment. We lack contentment because we lack God. We are not clinging to God. And therefore, then we are discontent. Angst and emptiness and discontentment. So far in our series through Exodus, we have seen God bring about a thrilling and glorious rescue of an oppressed people. And then that rescue is adorned with the promises that God would then dwell with those people. It's incredible. It is a wonderful picture of grace. We see a people that are delivered to dwell. And we have seen in the midst of this series the weightiness of what this dwelling with God means. As we got to Mount Sinai out of Egypt, we've come to see that His holiness, His righteousness, His perfections have no rival and will not sweep under the rug any hint of rejecting God or seeking to domesticate Him to fit whatever our hearts want God to be. And we have seen the law of God and how the law of God reveals and requires. The law of God reveals God's righteousness and it requires ours in response. But the law also reveals our inability to meet God's Righteousness, And this brings about a very sobering reality. The one that feeds our angst and our emptiness and our discontentment. And that sobering reality is that the security and sweetness of being in the presence of God is broken by sin. Sin. 
Because of sin, there's no more presence of God, no more security, no more sweetness, just sorrow and hopelessness. And there's this tension that we find in this chapter. On the heels of the people of God making an idol at the very mountain that God's glory had descended upon, was meeting with Moses to bring about what it looks like to dwell with him. As we wrestle with this and consider this, this chapter and all that we find in it, my hope is that it draws us and it drives us to then see how sufficient God's grace is for sinners such as us. That what we see here in this chapter is, yes, a real and raw picture of the devastation of sin, but then the overwhelming, overriding, completely amazing nature and scope of God's grace and His mercy, His very character, as if grace and mercy were things. No, they're just His character bursting forth out into our lives. It's God doing what God do. <laughs> and so as we do that, I want us to think through, these are, these are really kind of major thoughts of the whole Bible. And we keep finding these major threads of the Bible in Exodus, and, and we know where they ultimately lead us to see. But I want us to wrestle with them afresh this morning. Yes, we had Easter last weekend, and it was great, and it was, it was great to, to be able to rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior, and, and to know that it is truly finished, and we have a weep-no-more context because Christ has defeated sin and death and the grave and Satan, and it's awesome and great and glorious. And then Monday comes, and reality hits, and, and the week is hard. And all those things that we wrestle with, all that sin and its consequences are very real in our lives. So what do we do? What do we do in that? So my hope is that this will be an encouragement for us. And the first encouragement is some, just getting a sense of the, the raw realities of what we see on display in this passage. Is The first one is this. Sin separates. Sin separates. And there's really nothing worse than that, to be separated from God. Paul says in Ephesians, to be without God is to be without hope. To have no hope. I don't know of a worse place to be than to be without hope. Sin separates. And let's consider how sin separates. Look with me at the very beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 4 of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. God has instructed them to depart from Mount Sinai. As you read through the rest of Exodus 33, you'll see it called Mount Horeb. It's just another name the same mountain. They were to go to the land promised, full of blessings, except the most important 
one of all, God himself. He was not coming. And why, you ask? Well, as we've already noted, because of what happened in Exodus 32, the idolatrous abandonment of the people. In the making and worshiping of the golden calf, they rejected the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt for a little g-god of their own making. And as we considered before Holy Week, they became like that what they beheld. God charges them with being stiff-necked, which is a very common way of saying, uh, of calling a stubborn, untamable calf, a stiff-necked calf, stubborn, unwilling to follow. And the people respond to the news that God wasn't coming with them in just utter devastation. Look again at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, what was the word that they heard? You're going to go from here. You're going to go up in the land that was promised. It's going to be full of blessings. You're going to drive out all these people that are there. And it's going to be awesome, except I'm not coming. That's the disastrous word. No God with them. Literally, that means they were in utter and complete misery. They were wrecked. It's like they mourned their own deaths because to go without God was to walk into certain death. And this miserableness was unescapable because it was a judgment of their sin. They were wrecked because they brought it upon themselves. Sin separates. It brings devastation to our souls and into our lives. Sometimes the sins that we struggle with are easy and comfortable, and therefore the consequences are light and momentary, at least it seems, but yet it brings wreckage to us. It brings wreckage to our hearts. It brings wreckage to our relationship with God. It brings wreckage to the relationship we have with other people. It devastates and it brings a disastrous word. And what's worse is there's nothing that we can do about it. The people can't do anything about it. They just mourned their deaths. They know that there's nothing that they can do. And we see God explain this in even further ways when he was speaking with Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20. But he, Yahweh, says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Sinful man can't hang out with holy God and expect it to be like their bros. So glad. Hey, God, what's up, dude? Like, that doesn't work. Sin separates and it brings disastrous ruin. Separation from God. Separation from the very security and sweetness of God. Separation. And in this separation, sin brings angst and emptiness. We see on display in the people of God. Angst and emptiness. We feel it in our own hearts and our lives, if we're going to be honest with ourselves right now, as a result of the sin that we uh, struggle with and the things that lurk and linger around in our lives. We feel that angst. We feel that emptiness. We know the mourning over the consequences of our sin. Who in here hasn't felt that? Sin is no light matter. It is 
not easily excused or easily justified. It brings a disastrous word to us all. Now, as we see this and feel this and and think about that moment here in Exodus 33, think about the things that are maybe going on in our lives right now. My hope is that it awakens us to the seriousness of sin and to the devastation that separation from God really is, that our hearts would be awakened to the horror of that. There would be no more horrifying horror flick than to display the nature of what separation from God would look like. You would not be able to stand it. You would get out of that movie theater as quickly as you could. It would be that terrifying. My hope is that it awakens us to that. But see, that's not where this ends. It's 11.10, so I got plenty more time. (laughs) So while we are awakened to the seriousness of this, and please hear that. This chapter doesn't sink and submerge in the shame of sin. It doesn't squalor around in the bog of of sorrow and woe is me and sin. It actually ends up soaring to even greater heights than you could have possibly dreamed. So while we have hearts that are awakened to the seriousness of sin, my hope is that the arc of this chapter causes our hearts to soar even as we are honest with our sin. Because that brings us to the second unfolding reality in Scripture. Sin separates, grace intercedes. Really, God intercedes by His grace. Our sin separates God intercedes by His grace. I don't want to be accused of being overly simplistic or reducing the Bible, this incredible thing that we have. But that's the story unfolding through history. It's the story unfolding through the pages of Scripture. Sin separates, God intercedes by His grace. Grace is on display throughout this chapter. Three ways I want to highlight to you. First, God is gracious in sending his people away. I might, I will say that again because maybe you didn't hear that. God is gracious in sending his people away. It may sound a little odd to our ears at first. The sinful people in this moment are better off outside of God's presence than in God's presence. It's the same sort of dynamic at play in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. God sends them away. If they were to stay, they were to receive the ultimate consequence of their sin, and that's death. So God sent Adam and Eve out. God sends his people ahead. Rather than bringing the ultimate justice for their sin, God sends them on, giving them more days, more time, grace to work in their hearts so that they would turn and repent and cling to him through faith. God isn't vindictive toward his idolatrous people. He doesn't throw a tantrum at them. 
in a very strange and curious way, he bestows grace upon them. Sometimes we don't know the way that God is at work in our hearts and in our lives. Sometimes we see the consequences of our sin and we just feel so sunk down by them. But even in the midst of the consequences of the the sin in our lives and maybe the wreckage it brings into the relationships or situations all around us, God is actually graciously at work in that, bringing about a good in our hearts, that we would turn to Him and cling to Him and hope in Him and rest in Him and trust in Him, enabling our hearts to seek forgiveness to others. So God isn't afraid of the consequences. He can actually still work in and through them. Second grace that we see on display interceding is just that. God hears the pleas of a mediator. That is, of one who intercedes on behalf of the people. God hears it. He didn't have to. He he hears it. In the portion of Exodus 33 we read at the very start, we see Moses pleading for God to go with them. Moses brings his need and the people's need before God, calling on God to show up his character yet again. Look again at verse 13. Now therefore, if, Moses speaking, I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Moses interceding pleading the case that God would remain faithful to his character and his promises and to be with them. And God responds by stating he will be with Moses, but notice he makes no mention of the people. So then again, Moses carefully states his case. Look at verses 15 and 16. Moses in response to God saying, yeah, I'll go with you and I'll give you rest, Moses. Well, if your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us, did you hear that, up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is totally identifying and with his people, even though they were the ones who brought upon this idolatrous action in Exodus 32. But Moses knows that he can't and they can't go forward without God. That there's no strategy, there's no networking, there's no ingenuity that they can muster up to do what God has promised to do in this land. They must have God. That's how necessary the presence of God is. That we are undone without Him. That's how angst and emptiness and death and despair rule our hearts because To not have God would be to have all of those things in full measure. And so Moses pleads for God to be with them. And God says he will go. Incredible. God would hear the case that there would be a mediator. One who would intercede, speak up, on behalf of, take on. The responsibility of this people. Third act of grace that we see, the grace of God interceding for sinners separated from him, is that God displays his sheltering grace for suffering sinners. God displays 
his sheltering grace. Moses makes a strange request. He he asks God to show him his glory. In the midst of this interceding work and pleading with God to be with them, why does Moses ask this? Well, it has to do with the word glory. It has to do with this word. The word for glory means heavy or weightiness. It can mean it in a physical way. Like, if you recall, Pharaoh's chariot, Pharaoh's chariots, Pharaoh's chariots were weighed down in the mud when they were in the Red Sea. Weighted down, heavy. It can also mean a characteristic or a quality, like Pharaoh's heart was heavy toward the Lord, hard-hearted and heavy. What glory means here is, is that quality, that character. And what Moses is really asking is to see the very character of God. He wants to see God's essence and being. He wants to know that God is with him and these people, because without him, they can't go forward. With him, nothing will stop them. He needs that God. And you might think it's a bold ask, and maybe in a way it is, but the predicament of sin that Moses was facing is so real, and the thought of one second without God so dire that Moses wants to know, to see God, so he knows he can go forward. And God's response is profoundly gracious. Verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Whoa. First, God says his name again. Yahweh. Remember the construction of that word, Yahweh? It means, I am who I am. I am who I am. The very name of God says these things, that God is before all things. He is unchanging. He is eternal. I am who I am. That's what he said in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Now God adds a little more detail around that, I am who I am. He, he brings in a little more um, uh, exposition to what that really means. And he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The very description that, that Yahweh adds to his name follows the very pattern of his name. I am who I am. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What kind of I am who I am is God, the gracious and merciful kind? And then he shows it. He says it, and then he shows it. God instructs Moses toward a rock where he will put Moses in the cleft as he passes by allowing Moses to see just a glimpse 
of that glory. A cleft in the rock is actually sheltering grace. Do you realize that? It's sheltering grace where Moses is protected from the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin are that sinful people can't be around a holy God lest they die. And God, in his grace and mercy, in his overwhelming kindness, puts Moses in this cleft, this like cut in, in a rock, and and covers him as he passes by, then removes it just so that he gets a glimpse, all of which is sheltering grace because Moses otherwise should not have lived. God's actions of grace and mercy back his words of grace and mercy, which display his character of grace and mercy. And this grace and mercy is all flooded out on sinners who made a dumb golden calf. Who argued with their spouse on the way to church. Who were kids who didn't bother to listen. God has overwhelming grace, sheltering grace for sinners such as us. And what does he call it? All my goodness. He didn't say a lot of my goodness, much of my goodness, some of my goodness, all my goodness. That's God. Sinners separates. Sins separates. God in His grace intercedes. And the third thread is that you cannot read this without your heart soaring to Christ. Christ fulfills. Again, these threads run through the Bible. Sin separates. God in His grace intercedes. Christ fulfills. Christ fulfills. The incredible moment of God hearing the case of a mediator, interceding on the behalf of the people, saying and showing grace, isn't reactionary on God's part. He's actually setting the table for the great display of that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. A plan that reaches its zenith, its fulfillment in Jesus, the true and greater cleft in the rock. Our ultimate means of sheltering grace from the consequences of our sin. Jesus reveals to us in his life, death, and resurrection and who he is, reveals to us what Moses only got a glimpse of. I hope that this verse, we've referred to it a number of times in our Exodus series. I hope this verse bursts more in your head and heart as you think through the ways in which God has dealt with his people in Exodus. But John 1.14, typically a Christmas verse. I hope it's an everyday verse for you. That what we find in Jesus is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the the true and greater version of all that we're reading in Exodus 33. 
He is the one who brings the way for us to be with God, to have his presence, to to no longer sink in angst and emptiness, but to know the security and sweetness of the grace of God in our lives. It's because of Jesus. He has brought that forth. And in so doing, he took on not, I mean, he's everything. He's the mediator. He's the cleft in the rock. He's the gracious God, you know, caring for the sinners. He's all of it. But in terms of all that we see in Exodus 33, Jesus is the mediator whose life, death, and resurrection are our means of sheltering grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see this, for there is one God and there is One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The plan had a target date. When that date came, Christ showed up and did what he did so that we would have a final, full, and forever mediator on our behalf, supplying to us sheltering grace because our sin is just the worst and it separates us from God. But God intercedes through Jesus and draws us to himself. The angst and the emptiness that come in the wake of sin is met with the sheltering grace of God in Christ. And there is nowhere else for you and I to go but to the rock of ages, the cleft for us. That's who. That's what this chapter is leading us to see. Yes, our sin separates us from God. Yes, God intercedes for sinners. He does that through Jesus, and he calls us to Christ the rock of ages. He's the cleft. He's your cleft. Nothing else, no one else, no comfortable life, no restored relationships with other people. Though Those are good things. None of those things can give what only God has supplied fully and finally and forever in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else for you to go and nowhere else for you to hide but in the one who hides you safe, secure, and with great overwhelming sweetness in his grace. We're going to sing in response. We're going to sing a song that was based off of this very passage entitled Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. It's an old hymn from the 1700s written by somebody who was wrestling with these truths, wrestling with his sin, wrestling with the grace of God. We're going to sing in response. It's an old hymn, maybe not familiar to you, but the words soar because it's taking us to see just how sufficient Jesus is for us. Just how sufficient he is to be our cleft, our sheltering grace. As we sing, think upon all that God has brought to you in Christ. Think upon all the sufficiency of Christ And as we sing, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. May that lead our hearts to do just that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your overwhelming grace and mercy. Our sin is overwhelming and it it leaves us wrecked. So wrecked that we don't even know where to start or what to do. And God, I would just pray that you would help us to see 
that your grace is greater than all our sin. And that you have sheltering grace for us in Christ. Though we should be condemned, you have welcomed us into your family because of Jesus. Now may we cling to him and hide in him and know life in him. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? If you know the song, sing out. If you don't, hear the words. matter what sin that you felt sunk in when you came in here this morning. It may not matter what shame 
dogs your soul. What regret you drag around in your life. Maybe you feel sunk, overwhelmed, far from God. Maybe this, this has been the case for you for so long. And you feel angst. You feel emptiness. There's nothing that you could have brought in here that would have made you more acceptable to God. He accepts you because of Jesus. Who lived the life you couldn't, who died the death that you deserved, who overcame an enemy that you couldn't overcome, who defeats the, the sin that you drag around, the shame that you feel, the regret that is on your shoulders. There's nowhere else to go, no one else to cling to. And you have nothing with you. And yet God in His grace and mercy says, Come. Come. Maybe that's what you need to do. to Christ to plead out your heart God I can't go out of this room today without you you need to come with me or I'm undone and see how in Christ his grace and mercy are on full display and they're yours they're for you So come, hide yourself in Christ. Know this, know this today. Come to him. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in me
Our God is gracious and merciful to sinners such as us. And so as we go forward from here, go with this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.